Welcome to the Art of Strategic Reaction podcast. I'm Kyle Brost, a strategist and changemaker. I'm the CEO of Spark Policy Institute, founder and principal at Choice Strategy Group, and contributor to Forbes, Thrive Global, and Influencer. I lead at the intersection of strategy and impact, where I turn ordinary individuals into strategists and changemakers. Let's get started. Hey, 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 folks, this is Kyle Brost here with another episode of the Art of Strategic Reaction. Today we have on Corey Blake. He is a phenomenal guy. I'm excited to talk to him about conscious capitalism. He's doing a lot of cool work in conscious capitalism, a lot of work around purpose as well, has just a fascinating background. You will probably recognize him from some places that you wish you didn't, Um, but I'm excited to have Corey on and chat with him today. Corey, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Oh, you're making me laugh over here. Thanks, man. I appreciate you having me, Kyle. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Some people are probably hearing that and they're wondering what the heck is he talking about? Uh, and we'll definitely get there because you acted in some commercials that uh, that I'm sure a few folks have seen. And if they haven't, they will uh, be thrilled to be able to go see them after we're done here. So um, you have this phenomenally diverse background. I mean, you did some acting, you've been in some really well-known commercials, uh, you've been featured in all sorts of mag- magazines and publications. You're, you launched roundtable companies. Um, it seems like you're kind of all over the place. Tell me about that. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. I mean, you, you know, you, you use the word phenomenal and it's incredibly kind and generous. And, you know, um, you know, for, of course, when you're on the inside of it, it's just your life. So it's just my life. Um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a in a world where uh, I believed that I was going to be an actor. That's the only thing that made sense to me as a as being a performer. So I found my way eventually, accidentally, into the business world, uh, where eventually you know, I really discovered that that it's where I belonged, um, and we can get into kind of that, that transition if you like. But um, for me, it was a pretty profound transition of recognizing what, what wasn't working for me in my life and figuring out how to find my way into a future that, that felt aligned. But ultimately business was the place where I felt brought to life and felt like I was able to bring my talent in ways that it was desperately needed. And then eventually found my way to, uh, to conscious capitalism, uh, which I know um, was an interest of yours and, and is an intersection that you and I have. Um, and, and that was, a, a, has been a continuance of my purpose, uh, in terms of that community and how to help amplify the impact of people who are working really hard to do well by the world as they're doing good for themselves in business. So this, I mean, I want to get into the the whole acting thing, but do you ever feel or have you ever experienced somebody who sees you coming to business from acting and just totally disregards any ability you have because you were an actor? Like, I don't know. I feel like maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like there's this thing out there that actors just don't have the capability to actually do anything other than act. Like they're good at pretending, but to actually take any of that into the real world, there's always this skepticism. Have you ever experienced that, or am I just? Is this just me? I'm I'm totally projecting I, I something. I think, I think it's you, Cal. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I uh, I don't. You know, it's, it's, it's. I appreciate you bringing it up because I'm blessed to not have experienced that at least for a long time. It's also not something that people. I think when I did experience it, they weren't necessarily outwardly direct about. You know you're an actor, shut up kid. Uh, right. So okay. they might have, they might've felt it subconsciously and it came across as in the questions that they might ask or, or, um, or a reason to, to back away slowly, I guess you could say. Yeah. Uh, but, but we've been so intentional with our branding as an organization. My company Roundtable companies is 13 years old now. So for quite some time, we've been very intentional with our branding so that people who are not our tribe, don't tend to get into conversation with us. We really magnetically attract people who are an amazing fit with us. And so I've eliminated a lot of the resistance that you might feel uh, in that position simply through our branding, which was probably a subconscious effort to eliminate rejection that I spent years in the midst of as an actor. (laughs) <laughs> well, I think that's a good conversation. I mean, business, if you're doing it right, involves a lot of rejection. I mean, you're not going to resonate with everyone. Um, 
And so at least one thing that, that we know you could take from acting into the business world is that idea of rejection. What, uh, can you remember one of your first opportunities or experiences where you felt true rejection? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the penultimate uh, was a very defining experience I had when I was five years old and, and the one person in my life who had put me on the highest pedestal available, my mother. Um, when I was five hit a year of uh, severe depression and, uh, and her rejection was all encompassing for a period of time. So that was, um, I, I, I have felt it since as a, you know, in my, in my late thirties, when I started exploring what happened to me when I was younger, um, the language that I eventually came to was, was that my, my mother filled me with her light. And then during that year, her light went out. So for me, the way that I experienced rejection was the absence of that light. In the absence of it, I didn't know who I was any longer. So that kind of rejection has always felt to me throughout my life. Uh, I, I, I wear rose-colored glasses. It's, I'm a very optimistic person. So I experience rejection as somebody smacking my face and those glasses being ripped off, and I don't understand what I'm seeing without them. Wow. Well, I did not expect to go there. Um, Bingo, baby. <laughs> no, I, I'm honestly, I'm glad that we did because I think you know my mind was in one place around you know being rejected from a business standpoint, being rejected in uh, you know some some uh, calls that you were trying to get, um, those kind of things. But I think uh, this experience of feeling rejection isn't just a matter of somebody told me no, it really is what you're getting at. This sense of, uh, you know, somebody has um, truly withdrawn something from us that, that we long for. Um, and that's, that, I mean, that's real rejection. That's, that's raw, you know, mm. emotional rejection. That's a great point. I, you're, so you, thank you. You're, you're reframing this in a way I haven't considered it before, which is um, initially when I was acting, when you only have a few auditions, you know, a month, if you're lucky at the very beginning, those feel like rejections because, you know, you've only got a, a few lines in the water or one at any given time to catch a fish and eat. Um, so when it doesn't work right, it, it hurts. And and then there comes a point or there came a point for me where I was auditioning so frequently that that rejection was different. Um, it was it was far less personal. I came to a point of recognizing in the same way that if I did get chosen, it, it was just as likely that I got chosen, not so much for my talent, but because I looked like the person at the bakery that morning who smiled at the casting director and made them feel good, like as much as it was for anything mm, that I brought yeah. to the audition. So when I started recognizing that I was sometimes or, or maybe more frequently getting hired for random circumstances, it allowed me to also recognize I wasn't being hired for random circumstances <laughs> and that allowed it to be less personal. But business for me um, on the whole is, is relatively always personal because you know I run a purpose-driven business. We feel a tremendous responsibility towards the work that we do and towards supporting people and amplifying their voices. I'm very protective of people's voices because I, I do find them to be uh, so special, so unique, so important in the world that when, when I haven't done a good job of helping someone recognize the ways that we can truly be of assistance to them, I, I take, I, you know, I, I cave in a bit. I, I take it personally. That rejection is uh, a reflection of me not inviting them into what's possible in a way that serves them. Well, so you and I, I mean, this is the space that you and I have a tremendous amount of alignment on in that I, I too run a purpose-driven business. You know, my listeners know that we are all around and all about social innovation. We literally work on the biggest, messiest social problems that you can think of. We work on poverty and homelessness and juvenile justice and healthcare access. We, I mean, we work on these like massive problems. So you and I have this, this phenomenal overlap when it comes to this purpose-driven piece. And I think you mentioned something I want to get into. When we're talking about purpose-driven, purpose when we're talking about businesses with meaning, this idea of voices actually comes up quite a bit. 
Hmm. What do we mean when we're talking about someone's voice? I use the language quite frequently. Um, so let's, let's dive into to what that, how I might articulate that, right? Because voice is, um, it's relatively intangible in its makeup. It's not just the language that we use. It is the intonation. It is, it is um, the things that, that uh, where I get excitable. It is, um, it's the space between, it's the things I don't say. Uh, um, it's the rhythm and syncopation sometimes the musicality of the way that I communicate. Right. So, so to me, um, voice ultimately is a reflection of the essence of a human being, uh, which opens up a whole other doorway, uh, around, around essence work. What is, what, what makes up uh, the essence of who we are? Um, and the way that I frame that just to drop a little bit further into the rabbit hole here is, uh, is that, that. As human beings, there are things that we are pursuing in life, experiences we've had from the past that we're trying to duplicate or amplify, things that made us feel amazing that we want more of. And there are, there are things that we are running from, uh, things that we are trying to avoid, things that we want to pretend don't exist in the world, uh, things that pain that we want to you know, uh, run from at all costs. The tension between those two things, ultimately, I find, is what makes up the essence of who we are as a unique human being the expression of that in alignment with its greatest authenticity available to me, that is voice. Hmm. Okay. So I, I love that concept. This, well, there's several parts of this that I really love. I love the idea that the essence of who I am is, is not, is this kind of messy space between things that I think I am, things that I want, things that I, that I'm not, things that I am happy with, things that I'm not. Uh, it's this, it's where the, all of those pieces are meeting. Sometimes we think of life as this like really clean, neat and purpose as this really clean, neat space. Um, but what you're saying is essence. If I heard it right, essence is this combination of those things that it's some contradictory things that make us who we are. <laughs> I, I love the conversation so much. And you're right. I think, I think there is a, there's a nice sheen to the traditional conversation in my experience, because we get into so much vulnerable work with our clients um, and I do a lot of shadow work myself. Um, uh, I'm really fascinated with that side of things. So we explore what is, what is an individual or organizational superpower, right? What have they been born to do? What, what muscle have they flexed so much throughout life just because it started as a survival mechanism and then they realized, holy smokes, this works. We all do it. Uh, it's an asset. And then eventually it has the potential to become a liability when we fail to recognize that every superpower also has a shadow side to it. So I'll give you an example. Um, as a result of my upbringing and, the, and all the light that my mother poured into me, I have uh, what I call my gift is it's very easy for me to see what is beautiful and special in another human being and to reflect that back in a way that feels artistic to that person. And by that, I mean um, it's reflected back without judgment, um, as a, a reflection of beauty. And it, it helps them to step into that version of themselves more fully, right? So um, it's a tool that I use every day in work. It is really at a subconscious level what our company has been doing since the beginning. And I have to be really careful because the shadow side of it is that at a subconscious level, my body knows that I can get what I want when I use that as a tool, right? If I want something, if I want the girl to like me or the teacher to be favorable to me, or I want to stack the odds in my favor on a project, I have the ability to help myself do that because people like to go out of their way when I make them feel good. So I can use that in, as a manipulative tactic if I'm not careful. And sometimes I, I start doing it at a very subconscious level and as I've gotten older and, and paying more attention and I'm really have heightened my own awareness around my behavior, I can catch myself and slow myself down. But that is a duality that simply lives inside of me because every superpower has a natural shadow. If we avoid it, if we don't pay attention to it, I believe that it, it makes a lot of decisions for us that, that ultimately get in our way 
right? Because somebody who eventually has that moment of feeling like they've been manipulated by me, that is not going to lead to a good outcome. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's powerful stuff. Um, it, and it, and in every project that I've been a part of, it's always existed, but it's not something that's typical. Well, like the comics say, where great power exists, so too does great responsibility. So you have this great responsibility. You've got some superpower, but you have this great responsibility to wield it with purpose and intent. Uh, it's very similar, actually, to the idea that you know that every kind of superpower has this dark piece to it. It's very similar to some stuff that we talk about. Uh, I do. I administer Hogan assessments, which is a personality assessment tool. Um, and we talk in there about these strengths and how when they get over relied on actually become weaknesses. So you might be, uh, you know, your strength might be to, uh, be able to assert your wants or needs clearly. And then under the vast majority of circumstances, that ability surfaces as a strength. But when you get into these strenuous, these stressful situations, you can over rely on that thing that has helped you in the past. And now your assertiveness becomes a weakness. You become too assertive because you're over relying on it. Absolutely. It's, uh, we're speaking the same language. Um, I, I learned it through the lens of Gestalt uh, training, Gestalt therapy. And from that perspective, I was, uh, they, they, um, we developed what they call creative adaptations at young ages, which are survival mechanisms. And later in life, uh, those muscles are so strong that it's, it's a, you know, the same theory of um, you know, when, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So you flex the muscle that feels comfortable. And that methodology is all about raising awareness around that strength and starting to exercise alternatives so that while at the same time really expanding your awareness so you have that space between stimulus and response to ask is this the right tool for this moment, right? To get the outcome that is most called for here. And that is, you know, it's just, it's not something that we're, we're typically trained as human beings. Uh, we tend to lean in towards the thing that feels good and that we're good at. And that can ultimately cause damage when it's not the right tool for the job. Yeah. Yeah. So fascinating, right? <laughs> it is. Absolutely. Well, so, so st taking a step back, in terms of voice, if purpose and essence is kind of this, it's the foundation of what creates voice. Does somebody who's unsure of their purpose or essence not have a voice? Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say they don't have a voice. Uh, I would say that there's a strong likelihood that their voice is creating confusion as opposed to clarity and and is not being maximized uh and and is quite possibly working against them yeah hmm so what about all these teenagers that are trying to have a voice and uh and are coming from a place of confusion <laughs> Maybe that's me projecting again <laughs> um well I, you know the, the beauty the beautiful thing about voice also is that it's um it, it's it's it has no end the the, the discovery process it is a it is a constantly evolving thing. And I do believe very strongly that we don't think our way into our voice. We have to experiment, explore, iterate, uh, push up against the world in order to truly understand uh, how it shows up for us, its limitations, its boundaries, um, its strengths, its weaknesses, all of that. Um, it has to be on the mat in a, in a wrestling stance, right? In, in order to yeah. actually understand how it shows up for you. Um, and a lot of folks, particularly in the business world, sit around a table and think their way into, into language around this and, uh, and then hope for the best or hang it on the wall and, and right. And we think that we've achieved it. So it, it is certainly in my experience, uh, a, a to be wrestled with aspect of our work. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, that's honestly, that's something that surfaces a lot, um, both in the podcast as well as in my own work is that, um, and I don't know what the percentage is. I wish I did. It feels like it's like 99% of the population sees life and experience as this very sequential linear thing. Like I'm moving from one point to the next point and I'm never looking back or I'm never re-experiencing or I'm never zigzagging. And yet what you're saying here in essence is that, yeah, finding your voice isn't this like sequential linear thing. 
it's this kind of messy thing that you're you're going all over the place. You're wrestling with it, and and that's just true of life in general. Yeah, there's an aspect of you know the, the more that I work on myself, um, the more that I shine light on the parts of myself that I consider less lovable, right? Where I shine light where I judge myself. The more I do all of that work, the the more wholeness that I feel. My voice, I would say, is always a reflection of my relationship to my wholeness. If I am feeling fractured um, or or experiencing life from a place of fracture, my voice will will reflect that as well. So the more work I do on who I am, and the more unpacking I do of of my the moments that have defined who I've become, right, uh, which are moments of intense joy and intense pain, typically. The more that I unpack those and, and really understand where I'm coming from and, the, and essentially what is um, uh, how, the, how the world is moving through me at a subconscious level, the more that I bring that into awareness and do so with kindness, the, the stronger my voice becomes and the more impactful I can be in the lives of others. Yeah, I love that. So clearly you're a person who comes from this place of passion and purpose, and that makes sense why you're in this space of conscious capitalism. How did you get there? I mean, were you always a person of passion and purpose and, and these really deep kind of meaty, meaty emotional things, or, uh, or did that develop at some point in your life? Like, what did, the, what did that journey look like? Yeah, so I, I mean, I certainly started from a place of a fair amount of intensity because uh, my mother that I described earlier, you know, Jewish mom, Jewish son, uh, I, I was here on this planet to do something big in the world. So I, I, I was taught that I was special at a young age. So I think there's certainly something that comes with that um, in terms of the fire that is lit, like I have to direct it at something. Um, and then the performer in me, was was truly activated during that year of her depression because a laughing mom or a happier mom was a safer mom right so so that's really where that muscle started getting flexed and then i used performance throughout all of my my youth uh, to to get the things that made me feel safer in life or more successful uh, to be visible in the world um so then eventually that led to me singing and being on stage in high school and all of that got amplified, you know, through applause. <laughs> mm, um, yeah. Right. So, so the fire gets stoked. And then I, I was formally trained as an actor. Um, but the methodology that I was trained at the university level uh, was called the Stan Stanislavski method, which my experience of it was pretty analytical. How do you break down a script so that you can reconstruct it every night? Right. So it was a very, uh, it was a mental approach an analytical approach to acting. And then I went off to Los Angeles. And when I moved out there, I started studying the Meisner technique, which is entirely different. It throws the script away. And it starts with finding how do you find the crest of the moment between two people, the present, like literally the wave, uh, and how do you ride that for as long as you can. And that stoked so much of the fire again for me, because being being present in a moment with another human being is the closest that I feel to God. Like that is my zone. It is the place that I strive to, to duplicate as frequently as possible, right? Limit all distractions so that I can, can be present in whatever is happening right here, right now. That's, that's your voice and my voice, right? Yeah. Um, well, so you almost went that, from this, you almost went from this like breath, the, the applause and audience, this breath of connection to, to narrowing it down to realizing or recognizing that it really is the depth of connection for yeah, you. I think that's a be beautiful, fair point. Yeah. It, yeah. When I was on, on a stage making people laugh, that, that was a, that was powerful, right? That, that really impacted me. It excited me. Uh, and then later in life to, to learn how I could uh, create moments like that with, with a single human being was super powerful to me. Um, all of that from a passion standpoint, though, I was still trying to figure out where to direct it. And I truly, I believed that acting was the thing. And then suddenly here I am using my gifts to emotionally open people up in the way that I love doing. And then a company would follow that, you know, with a product that was not necessarily beneficial for that human being. 
unhealthy food, unhealthy beverages, mm -hmm. right? Like that's what I, so eventually I, there was a reckoning, right? That I had to come to of recognizing I'm using these gifts in ways that are not bettering the world, even though everyone around me is telling me I'm, I'm living the dream for all of us getting paid well to do the quote unquote acting thing. Although you know, very few people go out to LA to be a commercial actor. I was doing some TV, a little bit of film, but most of my, my income was, was coming from commercials. So I was learning a ton about how traditional brands do it, but feeling like there was a lack of responsibility that I needed to step into. I didn't know how to do that yet, but I knew I couldn't keep doing the thing I was doing. So I had to leave that career in order to make space for what would come next. And eventually the business that I started Roundtable uh, became the platform where over time we started saying no to anybody who was not sincere in their effort to take responsibility for what they did after they used our talents to open people up emotionally. And now it's, it's the only things we get involved with. Yeah. So this, I, I mean, it's very similar to my own kind of journey and story um, in terms of, uh, you know, I did corporate strategy consulting with large fortune 500 companies, clients that I love and, and enjoyed doing, but the same kind of result where I felt like I was helping them create these really powerful strategies. Uh, the businesses were successful or making money. And then when I would ask these core questions of how is anybody's life any better because of this, you know, we made $3 billion more last year. And how is anybody's life better? How's your life better? How are the employees' lives better? How are your customers' lives better? And nobody can answer that question. Um, and so it brought me to the same point that you're talking about where I said, I don't want to just keep doing strategy and the end result be nobody can tell me how life is any better. That's a heavy moment, right? It was, it was a heavy moment. And, and it, you know, it was covered in New York Times, um, but it, it was a heavy moment. It was that moment where uh, an actual moment in a session, a working session of a company that I had worked with for several years. I was very, you know, I knew that all of the C-level executives very well. We were all in the room together. And I asked that, I actually asked that question. I said, how is anybody's life any better because of this? We were, you know, going into a strategic planning process uh, and there was no answer to it. And I walked out that day saying, I, I, I don't want to do this for 10 more years. It, it is, uh, for me, uh, it's a real identity crisis. It was, it was back then. I didn't, because suddenly I was like, well, if I'm not doing this thing, who am I? I had, I had no idea. That took me uh, about three years to work through. And I, I call it my three-year temper tantrum where I tried to get the universe to bend to me and it didn't, it, it didn't seem to buy into <laughs> to my goal there. Right. Uh, uh, so I'm curious what, uh, from an identity standpoint, did you feel like that was a confusing time or were you able to transition quickly? Um, I don't, I think there was a part of me that um, I think honestly, I, I, I was already confused. And so for me, it was a point of clarity. So I don't think I could have articulated that, you know, this is kind of in hindsight looking back, but when I was much younger than that, I had done some reading on uh, social entrepreneurship and I'd gotten really into this idea of really wanting to do good in the world and that, um, that true innovation and value creation is all about the good that it's doing. And then I'd gotten away from that just by you know, being an entrepreneur and chasing this kind of uh, this ambiguous entrepreneur dream. And so for me, I think I was already in that space of, of confusion. And that was my point of, of clarity where it was like, Oh, wait a second. Like what I, what I was thinking about years ago really is where I need to be. Nice. Uh, you're, you're bringing me back to, uh, to, a, to a period of time in LA where, I, I didn't have clarity yet, but I, I was in the downward spiral uh, of not being able to manage myself amidst what was happening, smoking way too much pot, like to the point of burnout, you know, like 
being unkind to myself, um, being unkind to other people, I'm sure, uh, that confusion, right. That, that identity confusion. Um, yeah, it's, 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 no, it's just heavy as I, as I look back on it, I'm, uh, I don't wish it on anyone. And yet it's a, it's a catharsis period, right? There's a, there's a turning inward to eventually get to it. Like there's gotta be some kind of rock bottom that's manifested. And for me, uh, I, I, I worked on a project that made that I got hired to do. Uh, it was a, it was a, a woman who had been a prima ballerina who was crushed in a car accident, just a tragic story. Could oh goodness. Again. Yeah. Yeah. And, and had become really unhappy as a result and then went through some life situations that were just terrible. And she wanted to tell the story in a way that other people were invited into her misery and, and that was during a time where I was feeling pretty crappy about life. And so we told that story, screened it in front of 300 people. And I had, that was my moment of awareness of, I will never create something in the world again that makes people feel shitty. Life is tough enough. I, I need to commit to doing things that, that help lighten people and inspire folks. Yeah. So when was your, what was your first kind of interaction with the idea of conscious capitalism? I mean, you're talking about the seeds of conscious capitalism, this, this idea of really wanting to do something of value and its connection to the business world. When did you actually start to see that term and that idea of, wow, there's an actual group, there's an actual community out here who is focused on doing business in a meaningful, purpose-driven way? Yeah, so we started RTC. Uh, I started to, uh, informally 2005, incorporated 2006, and for the first uh, five or six years, I would say we were. I wouldn't say we were a conscious company. We probably would have said that we were, because <laughs> uh, we intended, I think, to follow those kinds of principles. But in reality, our our behavior, and I'll say it primarily, probably my behavior, um, was was in alignment with that 80% of the time, but the 20% it was out of alignment. It was very out of alignment. Um, and eventually uh, our COO at the time was my best friend at the time um, was really upfront with me. And he said, if you don't stop acting like a jackass, we're going to lose some really good people. Um, right. And, and that was a point of awareness for me that I, I needed to learn how to do some things differently. And we adopted our, some core values and, and I think really started to work, much harder on them 2011 2012 2013 we adopted love as a value and i actually got it tattooed on my arm uh, in a place that most everyone can see because i wanted that accountability for my own behavior i wanted it to be public oh interesting um, yeah and uh and then 2014 we were working with a client named jeff sinelli who runs which which sandwiches um they're based out of Texas. I think they've got about 400 restaurants now, fast casual. And Jeff's a fascinating branding phenom. And, and he was the one who was teaching me this principle called follow the yellow brick road. And what that means to me today uh, and was inspired by him is when someone that you care about and respect tells you to do something, don't ask questions, just try your damnedest to do it. And he was the one who told me to go to Conscious Capitalism's CEO Summit. He said, I belong there. And I paid my dues, had no idea what I was walking into. Uh, and that was, that's a you know, $5,000 entry fee, by the way. It's like, it's not a small amount of money. Yeah. Um, and I showed up and at the beginning of that, you know, two and a half, three day event, I had the typical reaction. I think a lot of people have walking into a space like that. Who the hell am I to be here? And by the end of it, I felt like I knew exactly why I was there. I was I was being called to serve this community. Uh, and I say that because my whole life had been an exploration on the consciousness side, the capitalism stuff. I had no formal training and I was figuring that out as I went. And I was in a room full of people who had invested so much in their intellectual horsepower and they were dynamos and so successful as a result. And they were trying to figure out this consciousness stuff that was just more intuitive to me. And so I, I immediately felt like I was called to be of support to these phenomenal human beings who were there to learn and, and I had something to offer. Yeah, that's okay. So that's really interesting. I had never, I actually had, I, I can't tell you how many times I've said the term conscious capitalism 
And I had never thought about somebody coming at it from the conscious perspective. Like the term itself together makes sense and I get it. But I'd never thought of somebody coming and saying, I've got the conscious piece. Uh, I just need the capitalist piece. That's an interesting approach. (laughs) Those of us who are hippy dippy in nature, (laughs) you know, like I (laughs) I spent a lot of time getting in touch with my body as an instrument. That's what you do as an actor. I was an actor. I was a dancer. I was a singer. Like it's all about your body as an instrument, your awareness of your body. None of it had been applied in a business context, but it was all there. I had to, I had to connect a lot of dots and I'm still constantly connecting dots, but the what conscious capitalism I think called forth from me was an integration of the performer I had used to be and literally stuck on a shelf when I started my business. I didn't think I would ever return to that, right? But integrating that former performer with the person who had then spent a decade growing a business, uh, suddenly those two identities were being asked to merge so that I could be in service to the community. And that was it was a huge purpose calling. It was challenging. I had to face the question of will will that magic show up for me the way that it used to. It was an incredibly terrifying time. The first couple times that I took the stage there, uh, I've always worked hard <laughs> to to show up well because I respect that community so much so much, and I want to be in service. But it is it has never felt easy, um, and I I suppose you could say maybe purpose shouldn't. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I I don't know. Maybe purpose shouldn't. That's a good question. So there's, I mean, in this space, there are a lot of different things. There's conscious capitalism, there's triple bottom line, there's corporate social responsibility, there's corporate citizenship. There are all these different catchphrases that um, at some level are kind of trying to get at the same thing, that business should operate in a way that um, can add value to the economy through profitability, but should also be adding value through the very mechanisms by which the organization operates, how do you see all of these coming together? I mean, it feels like sometimes there we have so many different pieces that are trying to address this idea. How do we get them to come together so that triple bottom line isn't its own event and people are talking about it and conscious capitalism isn't something distinct? How do we get them to come together so we can get kind of uh, you know an economy of scale, so to speak, around these things? It's a fantastic question. I I I don't know that they want to come together. Um, I interestingly, I'm, I'm a big, you know, follow the energy person, um, you know, uh, follow the story and, and let it tell you how it wants to be told. And, and currently, uh, cause I've been involved in uh, a number of these different organizations. So I was most prominently, obviously in conscious capitalism, but also social venture network, which is now social venture circle. I was a member of for four years. Um, some of that simultaneously to conscious cap and, Small Giants is another uh, one with a lot of similar values and purpose work. Um, All of these, I think there's a very strong sense of identity that occurs in these groups. And the example that I'll actually use uh, around what I learned about or like the way I finally articulated what's happening is uh, through Toastmasters. I have not a member. I was at one event where I was invited to speak and I met all these people who are so on fire about Toastmasters, so on fire, like everybody's working for free and they spend so much time promoting the organization. They go to these meetings. I mean, it is an intense whole system. Yeah. And right. And it begged the question, like what happened that these people are just out of their minds, ambassadors for Toastmasters. And, and the way that, it, that, that I describe it is it's the place that, that helped them find their voice. And when a place helps you find your voice, there is a, this huge loyalty that manifests uh, and this attachment that we get, that we create to that place. In my experience, conscious capitalism is entirely similar. People have been out in the world having this experience of how they're operating their businesses, what they're trying to do. And then they come to conscious capital and they're like, holy smokes, this is that thing that I've been doing, but I never had the language for Here's the language for it. Now I have a voice to tell people what it is I believe in. And I would imagine, triple bottom line, B Corp, a number of these places, there's an identity that is birthed there. And there's just this also natural extension of what happens when we become loyal to the place where our identity is birthed. Uh, we also become protective of it. So unfortunately, <laughs> some of the reality that you're highlighting is there's so much similarity between these organizations 
but oftentimes there's a fair amount of energy being directed at tug of war between them as opposed to them all rowing in the same direction. And I think it is this, again, the way I, the lens that I see it through his story and the story that I am hearing is that uh, people's identity is birthed there and that version of it is the one that they're going to fight for. Yeah, that piece that you're talking about in terms of these organizations, these groups, these communities, helping someone find their voice and the power and draw that that creates, that, that, um, that's powerful. I mean, and it begs a question of, you know, if I'm a business or I'm a, a community, how do I do that? How do I help people find their voice? Um, and then as you were talking, I was thinking about a client I was with just a couple of weeks ago, actually, um, who works with this very diverse network of people. They facilitate these convenings and, and gatherings and, and their perspective is kind of, uh, we just want to meet people where they are. Like we don't, we don't want, we don't need everybody to necessarily be rowing in the same direction because we don't have all the answers yet. So we're okay with them just rowing so that we collectively can start to get to some of the answers. So I, you know, I'm almost contradicting myself at the beginning here, but as you were talking, I was thinking, well, maybe, maybe we don't need to come together. Maybe all these groups don't need to come together. Maybe they're all, uh, you know, while they may be distinct groups, maybe they're all serving a valuable purpose and, and we don't need them to be one big group. I don't know. Or, or maybe I, it's, it's, it's a wonderful point that there, there's the potentiality that, um, that these are the experimental grounds and, if at some point some great unifier man or woman comes across, comes along uh, who has the ability to, to, to reach out in such a way where we all see that we're a part of that, then maybe we all start rowing in the same direction. And maybe this is just preparatory time for us to explore and better understand who we are uh, until something comes along that pulls us all in the same direction. And maybe that'll happen. Maybe it won't. Yeah. But I, I appreciate what you're saying about the potentially the value of rowing in multiple directions. It's a lot of experimentation and because this is, let's face it, this is, this is not something that has, has been the predominant uh, position around business in our country. Um, certainly there's always been people probably who've been practicing this, but the, the, the mass has been increasing. I don't know what percentage we are right now, it oftentimes feels like it's a really small percentage. And yet at the same time, I'm constantly finding folks who are seeing it for the first time and, and having that moment of, Oh, I've been doing this for years. That's what I've been doing. So I think there's actually quite many of us who are attempting in our best way to practice a version of this, but we don't, we haven't seen each other. So uh, for a long time, often we feel alone. Yeah. Well, so I have some very strong opinions actually in this space. Uh, and, what do you got? And, and, <laughs> and I'm and I'm right about it, um, totally. Which is hard to be right. It's hard to be right in this space and and so few people uh, be on the same page as you. Um, it's a difficult life I live in this space of always being right. But, I appreciate the the martyrdom and being you know, right. You you own it well. <laughs> Thanks. Here's here's my frustration. Um, so we have all these different approaches to conscious capitalism. We know that that society is shifting in a direction where this stuff is becoming more and more prevalent. Um, you know, you have uh, you have investors who are more and more driving these uh, decisions to be more conscious, to be more socially minded. Um, my frustration is that we have labeled good as two things and they and they just they they like get under my skin within a within a business we've labeled a business doing good as how much money have you donated and how many hours have you volunteered and when i say we i'm talking about a lot of businesses so maybe i'm just saying a lot of businesses say oh well i'm doing good because we donated money and we gave hours of we gave you know volunteer hours and uh and my frustration is that's not the problem the problem isn't that there aren't enough dollars out there or that there aren't enough people willing to give some time. The problem is that the very way that you produce your product or service, it's crappy. So it's like you can destroy the environment and then you go donate some dollars or you volunteer some hours and yet you still have a crappy business model. Yeah, so, so conscious capitalism is very explicit when you get into uh, the details of it, and certainly uh, John Mackey's position I've come to understand over time 
Um, it's not corporate social responsibility. And there's, and it's not to say that corporate social responsibility isn't a good thing, um, but it is a separate thing, right? Uh, exactly what you're addressing is the key that, uh, that conscious capitalism promotes, which is actually um, what you're producing, how you're treating people as you produce it, um, all of the ways that you impact lives along the way, the winning stake, everybody winning, right? In the model of how you go about doing the work that you do, all of that are the essential ingredients of conscious capitalism. It is not simply taking the leftover portion of profits and doing good with them. Awesome if you do, uh, but it's everything that that is a part of the journey to getting there. Right, and I think as, I think being able to get to that space is so key. The place that I see so many organizations get caught up is that they have this this false belief that once they choose to do good that they choose to be consciously minded in how they operate, that, uh, that they're not going to um, be criticized, that they're not going to, that they're going to be above criticism because they're trying to do good. And yet I think that what organizations actually have to accept is that when you choose to operate in a socially responsible way, a socially meaningful way, a conscious way, you actually, one of the conscious choices you have to make is that you're saying, I'm going to be vulnerable as an organization so that as we start doing this stuff, stakeholders can actually say, no, you know, can express their voice, can say, hey, you said this was going to be meaningful and beneficial to me as a stakeholder. And guess what? It's actually worse because of these things. And so by making this choice, an organization, I think, has to accept that they're actually, they actually need to be more vulnerable in this space. Uh, I, I think that's a great awareness. It is uh, ultimately, I think what maybe many businesses don't realize they're getting into is a, is a lifestyle shift <laughs> within their organization. Um, and I think we also have to be, be clear and upfront that, the, that, that being in the consciousness business um, is such an uphill battle because the, the more aware we become the more aware we become of how much work we have to do. Yeah. So just, just because, you know, I run a quote unquote conscious business. Do I really uh, No, I run a, I run a business that is mostly unconscious that is constantly trying to figure out ways to be more conscious. That's in, in actuality what it is, right? Because there are, there are an infinite number of areas to be addressed to make it a fully conscious organization, just because, I may uh, be be high, uh, you know, further along the line of development of conscious communication. That doesn't mean that all of our agreements as an organization are conscious agreements, because the law and practicing the law consciously is not something I can do just because I'm a conscious storyteller. Yeah. <laughs> right. Or yeah. when it comes to selling my business, um, doing so in a conscious way is not simply intuitive because I can do this other thing well, or like recently one of our, uh, our clients that we, we, uh, met through conscious capitalism, he's working to solve the paycheck to paycheck challenge in America. And when he presented at the CEO summit last year in front of, you know, 300 CEOs and presidents, uh, and, and shared with us, uh, how, in essence, we are all borrowing money from our employees between the time they've earned it and the time we pay them, and that and that that borrowing of that money is causing a tremendous amount of suffering. <laughs> like when he made us aware of that, like it was a cumulative head slap of holy smokes. This entire room, we are all we have all missed the fact that our antiquated payroll system has nobody in this consciousness space has touched it. And suddenly there's somebody who's, who saw a blind spot, revealed it, and now a whole lot is being done um, to alleviate the suffering that's created by people who, you know, for people who live paycheck to paycheck. There are an infinite number of these areas to be exposed. And so the journey is about, I think, honoring and recognizing that there are gaps all over the place, prioritizing where do we want to pay attention because we can't be consciousness, we can't be conscious in every area all the time, you, you would need 7 million hours a day in order to truly do, to be conscious for every conversation, conscious when you're you know, creating every email response, conscious when you're on every phone call and every interaction is really uh, challenging to do. So we have to prioritize and it's just a constant messy work in process. I think what you're tapping into is, is that we become actually more powerful when we admit we're in the mess, but 
companies, that's not, that's not intuitive. There is a, a concern that if we admit we're in the mess, we look weak. Yeah. Well, and, and like you said, it's this process of constantly uncovering blind spots. Um, and it, I think it can be daunting and overwhelming and scary to a lot of organizations. The thing that, that the plus side to all of it is that it actually gives you a space and a direction to be more innovative and creative than you would ever be otherwise. I mean, if all you're looking to do is bring in revenue, there are like a, a billion ways to bring in revenue and make money. That's not a problem. You don't have to be very creative to bring in revenue and make some money. But by putting some bounds to it and saying, yeah, we're going to bring in revenue and make money, but we're going to do it in a way that is powerful and meaningful and has a positive social impact, that puts you in a space to actually be phenomenally innovative, to truly create innovation. And that's a whole nother tangent of mine about what innovation is. I hate when the term innovation gets used for anything that's not having a, so, a profound social uh, uh, benefit. I appreciate that. There's, there's something around um, when, we, when we raise our level of awareness and stop avoiding conversations because of a fear of conflict or because it's just always the way that we've done things, et cetera, then we get into areas of opportunity that are really fascinating to explore. Um, but we, we have to get out of this old habit of just uh, accepting things as they are or, or refusing to, to speak up. And all of that takes this psychological safety Right, that is also a new term in, in business. Yeah, uh, you know how how do we create that? How do we? Um, it's it's a very top down right. If 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 the leader uh, is not is not exhibiting uh, safety, ain't nobody else you know going to dive into a pool that the leader is only willing to put their toe in. So right. we're all. I think I think there's a lot of learning that's happening right now about how to create safer spaces where people can bring more of their their whole selves. Uh, and that's a whole, uh, that's a, just a whole area of this consciousness piece that I, I agree with you invites more innovation because we're teaching our people how to be with each other differently. Yeah. Well, so the big takeaway here is it's a big, messy, challenging space. If you're going to enter it, recognize that that's where you're going to be, but that the payoff and the benefit is absolutely phenomenal head and shoulders above a traditional business approach to this work. Um, so we've gotten into this like pretty deep, messy space of, of conscious capitalism and the idea of doing good through your business. Um, I'm going to totally shift gears on us. And I have, okay. I have a couple of random questions for you. Cool. All right. So you filmed this commercial where you're a naked basketball player. Totally true. Were you actually naked? <laughs> like, did they give you a sock? I mean, how does so, that work? So uh, for the audition itself... They said, if you'd like to drop trow and demonstrate to the director that you're willing to feel free. And I did. Um, and I knew the woman behind the camera, which was all the more hilarious and uncomfortable. Did you know going in that, uh, that you were auditioning for something that was uh, closeless? <laughs> that's a good question. Um, typically, you have an idea. like They give you a very short description going in. I think it's quite possible that I knew. It's also quite possible that you know you walk into audition, audition, and and you're just showing up and going with the flow. So I, I might not have known, <laughs> uh, but then there was the callback, and uh, and we had a blast. Like they, there was I don't know maybe maybe uh, ten guys, and we went out back, and they actually had us uh, play five on five against each other naked, so they could see us move. No, we were on shorts, <laughs> uh, shorts and no shirts, though, I think. And, uh, or maybe we were skins and shirts. I don't know. Uh, probably. And, um, tops and uh, bottoms. on the actual tops. <laughs> <laughs> well played, sir. Well played. Uh, on the actual day of filming, I did have a, it's called a banana hammock. And, uh, the comedy of this for me was like the, at least when I was working, uh, back in the day, like the, the women who, uh, it was all women who did wardrobe and makeup at that time. And they were always stunningly gorgeous, <laughs> uh, at, at, right? And so, you know, as a as a actor, former nerd, like it's a really uncomfortable, hilarious situation when three of them are standing in front of you. Um, one is you know, rubbing you down in lotion, and, <laughs> uh, and and another is literally on her knees, stippling black makeup on your banana hammock. <laughs> <laughs> 
to, to represent pubic hair. <laughs> like, even though they knew they were going to blur it out, they still, you know, and that, that's the, that's the depth. And, and, and funny enough, she didn't stipple it on, on the banana hammock when it was, you know, sitting on a table it was, you know, it's on my body. So it was a, it was a comical shoot, but uh, I did have a, a little bit of cover up, uh, but the rest of me was all uh, <laughs> so, so if, if nobody, if you haven't seen, if you're listening to this, you haven't seen it. Just like YouTube bear basketball commercial, and you'll uh, you'll see Corey Blake. In, it's in a, it's for a company glory. called Yard. It's a company called Yard Fitness. The campaign was "Be comfortable in your own skin." It's me playing basketball a bunch of with a bunch of guys who really don't want to touch me, and I am all <laughs> over them. So, how did they film the scene where you're like your junk is right in the guy's face? I mean, you're like jumping over the guy. How that how that scene get filmed? <laughs> uh, they did actually set up a, a trampoline, and uh, and so I, I, I did the dunk off the trampoline and just hung onto the rim. And one of those brave other gentlemen had to uh, had to put a space in my crotch as I did so. <laughs> Legs full spread eagle. I mean, it was it was such a fun shoot. I can't even tell you. Uh, they're, they're an amazing group of people who put that together. They had originally pat, uh, uh, pitched it to Bally's total fitness and Bally's thought it was too risque, mm. but they were like, we have got to make this commercial. We'll enter it for some awards. So, so they ended up giving it away to this little gym. You know, I, I mentioned called yard fitness and they aired it for two weeks on cable. So it was eligible for awards and it just cleaned up. London Advertising Award, uh, Bronze Lion at Cannes, uh, International Advertising Award, got on you know, t- uh, the, the television shows for funniest commercials ever. And uh, as a result, you know, the, the, there was a lot of popularity. Um, ben Stiller eventually filmed Along Came Polly, had a very similar scene. And then Nike did their take on it when they sent a naked guy through a stadium, right? So uh, it kind of inspired <laughs> inspired a bunch of other people to, to, to take a risk. Yeah, definitely. Well, that's that's hilarious. Uh, and, and you had another really famous one, which was the uh, Bohemian Rhapsody Mountain Dew commercial. That, that one aired during the Super Bowl, right? It did. It was to the year 2000. It was the first commercial after the kickoff from the halftime. And, uh, and that's a, it's a pretty coveted spot. And, uh, it was a blast to film. We filmed that on the, on the lot at 20th century Fox. It was directed by a guy named Sam Bayer who directed, uh, a lot of music videos. Uh, one he was infamous for was Nirvana smells like teen spirit. Mm. Um, and this guy was just a, a behemoth. He was a director and a cinematographer who was known for throwing shit. Like <laughs> <laughs> he was, he was, he was just a beast, but, um, yeah, that, that was a, a pretty, pretty epic to film and like i said at the end of the day i was you know using my talents for something that was really fun felt really cool and then you know all said is all said and done did we did we make the world better for me the answer was no it's not to say that some people wouldn't disagree but uh you know mountain dew mouth is a real thing yeah actually i have a i have a buddy uh who spent his uh when he was doing um like his residency for he's an oral surgeon uh, and he did his residency out in, in the country. Uh, I won't stereotype by giving more clarity than that, but, uh, but did his residency out in the country and talks about that actually like Mountain Dew mouth and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's nuts. Yeah. People drink a liter a day. I mean, it, yeah. it, it's insane. Right. And yeah. So it, it was an amazing lesson. It was an amazing lesson in branding to be honest, because, the values of the company come through very loudly in the commercial and they brilliantly, Sam Bear, what he does so, so well, he makes everyone in the hero, everyone a hero, uh, including the audience, right? And so again, it comes back to voice and identity, like everyone identifies with that commercial and they sold a lot of product as a result. Ultimately, I decided to leave that and, and, and use my gifts to, uh, to be responsible in a different way. And I'm glad that I made that decision, although... I won't say it wasn't fun. It was a really fascinating, cool experience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and this brings us full circle. I mean, that's where you started. You, we started the conversation alluding to those things that you had done some work um, that was a lot of fun, you enjoyed, but just wasn't producing the the purpose and outcomes that you're really, really hoping for. You make the transition to conscious capitalism, you start to understand this idea of what's your essence and purpose. And you have some stuff now 
that is very focused on helping people surface and articulate their purpose. Uh, it's available on your website, roundtable.com. Um, and, and it's really spoken of in terms of guided meditation on what you stand for. And this is a resource people can go access, right? It is, and it's roundtablecompanies.com. Be careful, Roundtable probably probably sends you to a pizza website. We get a lot of, of restaurant inquiry. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a, it's just an unfortunate branding issue, but uh, but yeah, it's roundtablecompanies.com/slash/purpose. Um, we do, we do, we get. Uh, we're blessed to bring uh, to be brought into a lot of organizations to support purpose work and values work at this artistic, deep, beautiful level. Like really excavating, as opposed to cleverly thinking about how do we actually pull forth what we stand for as human beings based on our history, what we've been through in life. And, uh, and I get, I get to do that within organizations. I do it with keynotes and we've created this offer for folks. It takes about 30 minutes to go through. It is a fully guided exercise that bypasses your intellect and will help people to arrive at what they stand for without them quite realizing what I'm doing until it's already done. And that is the magic uh, of that work. And I, I love that we have it and I hope that people try it out. That's awesome. So the, the website is Roundtable Companies. We'll make sure that the right link is in the uh, the podcast for everyone. Um, so roundtablecompanies.com slash purpose. You can go check that out. Uh, I would say it's definitely going to be worth, worth your time. I'm going to go check it out myself. Um, Corey, man, this has been a heck of a conversation. Thank you. No, what a pleasure. I, I appreciate that we uh, we went a bit all over the place as you started <laughs> saying my life was all over the place. So was our conversation. And it was really rich. Um, I, I articulated some things differently than I have before. So that's always a, a, a great reflection that um, it's time well spent. Thanks for being in the conversation with me. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having uh, for joining us here on the podcast. Uh, folks, check out Corey Blake, roundtablecompanies.com slash purpose to um, take the assessment or walk through the activity, the guided meditation. Thanks for joining us on the Art of Strategic Reaction, and we will catch you on the next episode.